Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow the text in the order of worship there. Everything that I'll be preaching from is right there. So 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. And again, I want to say welcome. And I've already looked around. I've seen uh, already a couple of people that have been members here who moved to other cities and were back visiting. And uh, it's great to see old friends. And it's great to see the Farnsworth family on the back row. And uh, Hal was my campus minister in college and married Dana and me and has uh, participated in some special services of our church. So great to see, see you again. And uh, love having the Arnolds here. Really welcome. Last night at dinner, we were talking about the monsoon season. And um, so welcome to ours. We're, uh, <laughs> we're glad to make you feel at home. <clears throat> I did forget my coat, so I just kind of stand before you in my blazerless condition and say, uh, this, is, this is who I am. South Carolina belt, kind of glad I had some extra de- decoration this morning. But um, we, uh, we're, we're in a new series. Well, it's not new, about halfway through. If you're visiting, what we're doing is uh, we're, we're calling this the habits of love. And what we're looking at are basic Christian practices, basic Christian behaviors. But what we're trying to look at is to say, all right, these are things that Christians ought to do. And as we, as we have said week after week after week, ought is not a bad word. Duty is not a bad word. Command is not a bad word. Habit's not a bad word. What's a problem, though, is if the only reason Christians are doing these behaviors is just ought. You know, like, I ought to pray, so I guess I should pray. And I feel bad about how I don't pray like I should, because I ought to. And what we'd love to see would be for God to work in our lives, to use some of these things that we're learning so that we're doing what we're doing, not just because we ought, but because we love. And something that we said at the very beginning of the series is that when you look at human behavior, wherever you're coming from spiritually, I mean, it doesn't matter what your spiritual views are, just as a human being, um, I love will always trump I ought. I mean, if we love someone or we love something... There are going to be behaviors that flow out of that, even rituals, even habits that flow out of that if we love something or someone. What would it look like for us to do things like read the Bible, memorize it, pray, give, have people over, uh, involve ourselves in the lives of others, really not just have church but really be tied at the hip? What would it look like to do that, not just because we ought but because of love? Now, the one we're looking at this morning is giving. And things that we've already talked about in this series, you know, that involve giving, giving of time or giving... We we looked at service last week, serving one another. That's a form of giving. But really what I have in mind is financial giving, giving money, giving things. Um, when, uh, When I started out here several years ago and someone set up an office for me downtown... Here, we were just a church plant, no church building, pretty much unknown in Greenville. But, and I don't even know how this happened, but just from having, I think, church in my mailing address, almost immediately solicitations started coming in. People asking for our, they would say church, you know, it was a church plant, but people asking for our church to give money to things. And overwhelmingly, when you'd read these solicitations, the, the two kind of, angles that the asker would take would be either we are commanded to do this 
Like, these people don't know Jesus, and we are commanded to take Jesus to them, which is true. Or these people are without, uh, they have needs, they have physical needs, hunger, homelessness, whatever. We're commanded to take care of them, and we are. So that was one approach. The other approach would be, what will they do if you don't give? And you, you have experienced this too. At Christmas, what are the three kinds of mail that start just coming in in droves? Cards, which are great, except when they have the, what our family's been up to in like six-point font, double... So the, that's, that's usually doesn't go over well. But the cards are great. Catalogs come in droves. Those are okay. But the other is you, you just get pounded with requests for money. And you've heard these kind of angles. It's either, you know, we're commanded at this season of gift giving to, or uh, what will they do if you don't give? Now, we're looking at a passage from one of Paul's letters. This is 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> city of Corinth, which was a wild city where God worked. And quite a few people became Christians. Some had been Jews, a lot had been Gentiles, and they came to saving faith, and a church started there, okay? This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and he's talking about a collection that he's he's taking up. And this collection comes up in different places in the New Testament in his letters. And it was a collection for Christians in Jerusalem. And they were under a real hardship... They're without money. And so Paul, as he's making these missionary journeys, he's even riding ahead to say, I'm coming through your area. Collect money. I want to give this to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And he refers to doing this in Macedonia, largely what we would call now northern and southern Greece. And he says to them what he said to these other cities that, you know, set aside money, and I I want to present this to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, I want you... When he talks about them giving, listen to how those two angles I just mentioned about giving, it's commanded, or what will they do if you don't? Listen to how that's just absent. Neither one of those are there. So how does Paul motivate people to give generously? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather together, you know that we are a group that constantly feels confused or frustrated about money and that we're chasing our tail and we're overspending or we're overly nervous or we are stingy or we're living beyond our means or we're just worried all the time about it. And so how we need the good news, how we need to hear you. And we pray that we would not only hear what you would have us do, but we would very clearly hear your love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. About two and a half years ago, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, and it was co-authored by two academicians. One was Robert Putnam. And you may have heard that name before. He wrote a book several years ago called Bowling Alone. And um, he's a professor of public policy. He wrote a book about Americans being very individualistic and lacking community and feeling lonely. So he was one of the writers. Another was a guy um, who's on faculty at Notre Dame. They wrote this piece called uh, Charity's Religious Edge. Now, I'm not going to quote from it, but he, and it's not, not that long of an article, but they did a bunch of research about giving in the United States. And they divided the, the, the American population into five parts. And so it, it comprised a spectrum. And they said, all right, let's say here's the most secular fifth. And the, the, those are their terms, secular. And then here's the most religious fifth. Now, the most religious, that's not just Christian, but it's largely Christian. But it would also be Jewish and Muslim and all that. And they said that in their research, something became very evident that even though the secular, most secular fifth, two-thirds of them gave to something, to some nonprofit, to some charity, and that's, that's not bad, two-thirds. 94% of the most religious fifth gave. But what surprised them in their research is they didn't just give to their church, a ministry they liked, you know, a synagogue. But they even gave more to secular causes. In other words, they didn't just give more to their church or, or, you know, a ministry they liked, but they gave more to cancer research or to a school. That there was just a greater impulse to be generous. Now, okay, take that and let's put, that's one piece on the board, all right? And here's the other piece on the board. Year after year after year after year, and I've seen this stat over and over and over. There's research done about how much do evangelical Christians really give? And when we say evangelical, that's just kind of a broad brush term for people who really believe the content of the Bible. They really believe that the Bible is true and authoritative and Jesus Christ is how you're saved. 
And year after year, I've seen different stats, but it hovers around 2 to 3% of their gross income. And that's after generation after generation after generation of evangelicals being pounded with teaching about tithing. And what is tithing? Tithing is giving 10% of your growth, not your net, not pay all your bills and then whatever's left over, take 10%. Tithing is taking 10% of your gross and sending that to the Lord. Year after year after year, that's taught and preached, and there's the video on the screen about the family that had not tithed, and now they tithe, and it's amazing. And, and uh, if you want to feel amazing, you know, you do the math. And it hovers like around 2 to 3% over and over. Okay, so that's the other piece on the board. Now, you look at that and go, all right, there's the two pieces on the board. What is that telling you about professing Bible-believing Christians? Well, it tells you this. And all the time when I'm teaching, I say both and. I feel like I'm constantly framing things in terms of both and. Like, here's another both and. We, Christians, we both have the resources, and I don't mean just the financial, tangible resources to be generous. We have the internal resources to do it. That we have the resources inside of us, given by God, to send money out the door, to be open-handed, to be the most generous person in town. We both have that and we get scared. Or we went through a tough time and it was just not fun and there wasn't enough money and it was crumbing and if money comes back through, we're going to be kind of tight-fisted with it. Or we don't know what we're doing. Or we watched uh, parents maybe mishandle money. Or or we watched another family member mishandle money. And we feel like, man, if I just write checks and send money out the door, if I did just make that the biggest check, whatever, that I, I, I could really get in trouble. We're both found. Those are not new dynamics. Those are ancient. That, that's just, that is as ancient as the human condition. And what I want to look at, thinking about these habits of love, giving, generosity, I want to look at how Paul motivates a group of people who do not come from church backgrounds, how to be generous. Generous to Christians they're probably never going to meet in Jerusalem. And I want to make a contrast here between shallow motivation and deep motivation. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the shallow, but just look at how motivation to give can be either on the part of churches, preachers, shallow or deep. Now, what does shallow motivation look like? It looks like a motivation that's driven by ought. Now, again, is ought bad? No. And let me say this, lest this go unsaid. Are we commanded to be generous? Yes. So having said that, how do you motivate people to obey the command? Is it just to say, well, you were commanded, and you ought to do that. Look in verse verse 8. Paul's been talking about 
I've collected from the Macedonians, and you've been working on your collection. And then he says what in verse 8? I say this not as a command. I'm not commanding you to take up money for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And then in the next chapter, and this is not on the bulletin, but in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, he talks about generosity again. And he says, look, God loves a cheerful giver. And I don't want you to give out of compulsion. He says that explicitly. Do not give because there's a gun to your head. And these are moments in this letter that, I mean, this is an opening that you could drive an 18-wheeler through. If Paul was going to, like, take the tithe bat and hit people, this would have been the time to do it. And it's absent. Now, if you're visiting, let me say this. I, I don't preach much about giving. Very little. I'm, not, I'm not saying that apologetically. I'm not, I don't feel bad for preaching this. I'm just saying this, this is infrequent that this comes up. But let me say this. I, you know, can we acknowledge as we're together that the generation after generation after generation of just pounding Bible-believing Christians with tithe, 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 tithe is not working? It's not working. That giving, in fact, it's even sort of sliding down as overall our country has become more affluent. So what does Paul do? Did you notice the term? This is not surprising for Paul. Did you notice the term that kept coming up when he starts talking about generosity? Look in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, isn't that interesting, first off? He doesn't say, hey, now I'll tell you who's nice are Macedonians. You know, unlike those stingy-pantsed Philippians who barely gave any... He doesn't shame. He says that this money that the Macedonians gave, it was not so much a manifestation of, look how awesome Macedonians are. It was a manifestation of God being very gracious to people. And then you keep reading, and what does he say in verse 6? Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of what? grace. Verse 7, as you excel in everything. By the way, this is beautiful because if there's anybody that got kind of smacked around some by Paul in his first letter, it's the Corinthians. The chapter before this, he says, I know I really sort of let you have it in that last letter. In fact, I almost felt bad about it. But then what? listen to him complimenting them. Is he shaming them? It's the opposite. You excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Very important, not not to beat it to death. Motivating generosity through just command is shallow. It will probably work in the short run for a little bit, especially if you kind of have a compliant personality. And then it'll wear off. How does he motivate deeply? He starts talking about grace. All right, great. That's an important Bible word, grace. Unearned favor. Undeserved mercy. What does grace look like? And this is really beautiful. 
Paul does something that he loves to do. When he's trying to, to point out a behavioral change, he'll take the gospel story and he'll retell it and he'll run it through the template of that behavior. Like, for instance, how do you get knuckleheaded Christian husbands to love their wives? Just beat them about the head and shoulders? No. Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. He's, he's telling the gospel to them again through the template of that behavior of a husband loving a wife. He's talking about giving. And he starts talking about grace. All right, so what, is, what does grace really look like if that's going to touch me? Verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, three things there. He was rich, he became poor, that you might become rich. When in the world was Jesus rich? He was born into poverty. And, and two different times in the Gospels it says, you know, he, he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I mean, have you, thought, have you thought about that? Have you thought about our mental picture of Jesus doing what he does as the Messiah might be that he just heals and heals and teaches and touches people and ministers to people and then at the end of the day kind of comes in and sort of, you know, hangs up his coat and, whoo, man, there is no coat rack. There is no home. And uh, Luke says there was a group of women who uh, financially supported him and the apostles. So when was he rich? Um, our last hymn this morning is going to be a Christmas hymn. Because Christmas hymns should be sung more than once a year, you know? And it's really a hymn about this verse. I see you turning to it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I hear you. <laughs> Just boldly do it now. And the name of the hymn is, Thou Who Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor, All for Love's Sake, Became as Poor. And then what's the next line? Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Now, what is that saying? The hymn writer is saying he wasn't ever rich in his incarnation. He was rich from all eternity. That as the second person of the Trinity, he was the same in substance as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he was equal to the Father and the Spirit in power and glory. He had unimaginable wealth if you want to speak in terms of possessions, by having made everything and owning it. But that was not the great wealth. The great wealth is that he was and is fully God. So he was rich, and he became poor. Now, he was born into poverty, and you can prove that from the Gospels. When Joseph and Mary came to present him at the temple when he's eight days old, they gave an offering of two... Um, Translate it two doves or two pigeons. That, that was the offering, that was the provision for the poorest Judeans. So he grew up without means. But was that his great poverty? 
Let me read you something that was written in the um, it was written in the '60s, and here's what it describes: It's describing a group of people coming to God, saying, "You live in heaven, and you're God, and you can't suffer. We suffer. You live in heaven. We live in a messed up world." And so, who are you to judge us? Why should we have to appear before your, you know, the, the, the bar of your courtroom when we're the ones that have to go through all the hard things? And so, just in this little, in this little exercise, here's what it says. These different groups who'd experienced great hardship on earth sent a representative, chosen because he had suffered the most, a Jew, a black, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly disabled arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of a great field, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. The verdict was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At last, let him see what it means to die terribly alone in agony. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. And then, of course, what's the punchline? Exactly what happened. That the poverty of Jesus was not just, I was, you know, I had those sapphire paved courts and uh, became a Judean. It was that he took the hardness and the severity and the brokenness and the evil and the suffering of the curse of this world on the chin. And this is so great. Paul, this, you know, the detail of grammar. Paul could have said, he did that for our sake. And what does he say to these Corinthians? He did that for your sake. Here are these people, these first generation Christians in a crazy city, a lot that they don't know. And Paul says, listen, I want you to give. It's an act of grace. But you know all about grace. You know that God became a man and went through the worst that this world had to offer. Why? For your sake. Not because He just loves people generically, but because He loved Corinthians. And it is appropriate for us as we're here to say, hey, giving is an act of grace. We know about grace. What is grace? Grace is that God became a man and became poor. Why? Because he loves Greenvillians. Loves them. Always had. Now that's motivating. 
Um, as many, many a preacher, many, many a pastor has said, God did not tithe himself. The Son of God gave his all. That's grace. Undeserved, unearned. So what does it look like when that gets in your heart as far as generosity goes? And, and we have been looking at, all right, some particular behaviors. What does it look like for that to touch our living? Well, a few things here. And if you're visiting every week when we get to this part, I'm frustrated. You know, we talked about prayer and I wanted to talk about 48 things and I had time for like four so, I'm in the same boat again. So, don't see this as, the, this is everything I have to say ever about Christians giving. This is just sort of a see-do on the surface, all right? As it were. The first thing is this. And we said this about prayer, and we said this about the Bible. <clears throat> giving makes great infrastructure. Meaning, in the same way that we looked at prayer and said, what if instead of just saying, here's what I've got to get done today, here are my obligations, what time is left over, and maybe I'll have the energy in one of those slices to actually pray a little bit. Rather than do that to say, here's when I'm going to pray, that's built into my life, and the rest of life fits around it. And we said, what if, instead of monks having a monopoly on that, what if that was our lives too? And we said the same thing about Scripture. What if monks having a monopoly on, we stop everything, and this is a time when we study the Word of God, or some ascetic, or, or whatever. What, or seminarian, or theologian, what if that was something that was just like I-beam infrastructure to our lives, our day? What if giving was just infrastructure of our budget? Meaning... Rather than just live in a catch-as-catch-can way, and then we sort of look up, and if there's anything left to go, uh, Salvation Army's hounding me. Cut, just give them 25 and make them go away. To say, no, 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 no. What if I built in that this is what goes out the door, and the rest of life is lived around that? Now, again, if you're visiting, what I'm about to say is pretty unusual for me. That's not an apology, but I'm trying to be brass tacks here. That's going to mean different things for different people. For some of you, there's a real joy in literally, physically, like taking bills and putting them in an envelope or taking a physical check and walking it over to our pirate box, wherever it is, and we used to call it the historically connected box, but then it became pirate box somewhere along the way. But taking it over to the pirate box, you know, and dropping, that's part of your worship experience, and it gives you joy, and I would say, don't stop. Don't stop. Let that be part of you responding to God. But it may be that if this is an area where repentance is needed in your life, what's repentance? Is repentance to say, I've got to get my crud together. No. Repentance is, I cannot get my crud together. And to turn to the Lord and say, have mercy on me. To turn to God and say, have mercy on me. I need the gospel every moment. And then that repentance bears fruit. It bears fruit in the form of behaviors. For some of you, what that might mean is a bank draft. To just say, you know what? I'm, I don't trust me when money first comes into my account. 
that what repentance is going to look like for me is to say, you know what, this is going to go out the door before I can even touch it. It may be that you need to do that. To meet some expectation of downtown prayers? No. To jump through some hoop? No. To bear the fruit of repentance and to give your, to give your financial life infrastructure. Second thing is this. <clears throat> Our vocabulary of giving could improve. Our vocabulary of giving could improve. And what I mean by that is evangelicals, when we talk about giving money, tend to park at tithe, 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 tithe. And it's interesting that after the resurrection, multiple times in the New Testament where it would have been a perfect place to bring up the tithe, it's not there. The tithe was very tied into the ceremonial law, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple. But you know what the New Testament does talk about? Things like first fruits. What are first fruits? It means that if you grew crops and the first crop showed up, an act of worship was to take some of the first and some of the best stuff and give it away. It's like, you know, I killed myself all year to have this basket full of this, now let go of it. I killed myself for this, uh, for this sheep to turn out this beautiful, this healthy, this is the best sheep in the flock. Sacrifice it. Um, the New Testament takes that language and applies it to giving. That rather than giving be the last fruits, it's the first fruits. That rather than giving be, well, let's hedge our bets. Did I say 25 to the Salvation Army? Make it 20. It's to give in a way that you actually feel it. I mean, can you imagine if you killed yourself raising sheep and here's just your prized sheep and then you take it to have its throat slit? That would be crummy. You would feel that. But your heart would know, well, then you must worship whoever you gave that for. Or unto. It it works the same with money. Third thing is this. Let's let's avoid extremes about the future. One extreme that I don't have time to talk about would be that you don't plan anything for the future. Old and New Testament would say, that's not a good idea. Don't fly by the seat of your pants about your money in the future. Another discussion. But the other extreme is this, is that we're freaking out about it. You may have met with a retirement planner or a financial planner, and here's what's probably going to happen in one of those meetings. They sit down with you, pen and paper, and and again, this is not wrong to do this, but somebody's going to say, okay, these are weird questions too to answer. When do you think, uh, how old do you think you'll be when you die? You know, you feel kind of, don't want to highball it, don't want to lowball it. So, I don't know. 83, I I don't know. How old do you think you'll be when you stop working? I don't know. 70. Who knows? So, all right, 13 years that we've got to plan for it. Now, what would be uh, an income level at today's dollar value that would, be, that would be good for you? So you give that dollar amount. And then the question is, now, what do you think is a realistic rate of return on investments? And then you give that figure and they say, okay, well, then given that return that you'd like to see and that amount of money you need, here's how much you'd need to save and they write it on a piece of paper, and then our heads explode. (laughs) 
because it's a crazy, gigantic amount. All right, now I just got through saying, let's avoid both extremes. Let's, let's not not plan. I know that's a double negative. Let's not not plan. However, um, is God real? Is he going to take care of us? How rich do I have to be? And, I mean, there's 11 different sermons that could spring off this, but, man, God is our Father. We're supposed to plan as if He's our Father, not as if He's not our Father. We're not supposed to plan as if, man, I'm so glad God loves me, I'm so glad that God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm so glad I don't have to trust Him. You'll have to talk about what that means. The last thing is this. Build a real 401k. This kind of hooks into the last one, but do it the way the Bible says. Do you know how the Bible says to build a great 401k? One of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 19.17 says that when someone gives generously to the poor, they make a loan to God. And he repays them. Jesus, in Luke 12, says, Fear not, little flock. And there it is. Calm down. And quit living in fear. Because your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. And then what does he say? Sell your possessions and give what? To the temple? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Is there something sitting in our house that we don't really use and we don't really enjoy it, but we're kind of hanging on to it because it's valuable and something might happen one day? What are, I mean, what, what are we thinking? If there's a financial meltdown, you know, is an armoire be- going to become currency? You know, like, I'll bring my walnut armoire and you give me, like, bananas, and then I, you know... <laughs> you know, or, here's flatware, give me bread, you know. Probably not. It's never been easier to sell things. The Internet's one of the upsides of the Internet. There are things we need to sell. To give to whom? To give to the poor. Um, I'll end with this. Martin Luther said that, he said, you know why you have fingers at the end of your hand? You know why up to here it's just kind of one piece and then there's this little spindly part? He said, it's so that money will slip through it and you'll have joy. Now, I don't know that we can say that because, you know, gorillas have fingers too, but uh, you get the point. And over and over in the New Testament, what is the emphasis? You better do this because it's commanded. The emphasis is... Let it go. Write the check. Make the let, take your hands off it so that you will have joy, and you will traffic in grace. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father. Make us gracious.
since you have been so gracious and kind, you have not tithed yourself, you have lavished. Thank you for your grace. May it be reflected in what we do with our money, with one another and your church and the poor, our city and the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.